today's reading comes from Matthew 5, 1 to 2, 11 to 12. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, the disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You may be seated. As you're seated, let me pray. Father, we thank you for the Sermon on the Mount. We thank you for the Beatitudes. We thank you for the life and ministry of Jesus. We thank you for these words of encouragement, these preparatory words for what we may experience in the Christian life. We thank you for the promise of our eternal hope, that we are your children and that we are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. We thank you for the enduring promise of that in spite of any trial, any circumstance, and any situation that we go through. And Father, I just ask you that in this time you would strengthen us by your word, fill us with your spirit, give us ears to hear today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, Jesus begins the Sermon on the Mount with these eight statements or eight blessings, these beatitudes, which we've been looking at over the last eight weeks. Now, together, when you take these eight beatitudes, they actually form kind of one comprehensive portrait of what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus. One portrait of what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. There are eight statements that tell us, really, I think a snapshot of what the church will look like when they live their lives for the glory of God. Each of the eight that we've looked at over these last eight weeks are an individual characteristic, and we'll talk about this in a minute, then attached to that characteristic, a future promise. All eight of them are the same, they're formulaic in that way, and this one deviates from that, and I'll explain why I think it does, where it's the eight Beatitudes plus this one that we have included. Uh, for example, we have blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. We looked at that, I don't know, five or six weeks ago. Blessed, we've been saying all the way through this, is blessed, flourishing, and in right relation with God and others. Blessed are those who mourn. We, we talked about that as we're mourning the state of the world. We're mourning the consequences of living in a broken world. We're mourning the consequences of the reality and the effect of sin in this world. Blessed are those who mourn. It says, for they and they alone. They and they alone shall be, shall be in the future, comfort, comforted. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. These all eight of them include a statement. It's like a descriptor of the kind of person you grow into when you're in relationship with God in Christ. When you're in right relationship with God, then you hear this descriptor of what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom, a disciple of Christ, and attached to it is the future promise that you have. It's not talking about the kind of person who is eligible to be saved. I want to be super clear about this, as we have been, I think, over the last eight weeks. It's not talking about the kind of person who can come into relationship with God, the kind of person who's prepared to enter into relationship with God. It's talking about the characteristics of an individual who has been brought into relationship with God. Very important distinction for us as we study the Sermon on the Mount. He's talking about the characteristics of Christians and the promise that they can then bank on. And so one of the ways that we talked about this all the way through is that we have this characteristic, blessed is or blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. There's a future promise. And what we do is we grab a hold of the future promise and we import that into the present moment here and now. All the way through this. And we're going to talk about this more later. The 
present descriptor of the citizens of the kingdom of heaven with the attached promise that we who follow Christ are enabled to draw into our present moment right now. We bank on this promise and we import it into the moment in which we live. Um, Brant did a wonderful job. He's the associate pastor of Christ City Kitsilano. He did a great job last week of articulating verse 10, which is the eighth of the eight Beatitudes. And, and now we need to just look at the expansion of that eighth Beatitude and how it moves us into the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. It says in verse 11 again, and you just heard it read. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. When we read this, I think we can all agree that it is at the same time true and also a little bit of an unsettling statement, right? a little bit of an unsettling statement. He says that when others revile you, persecute you, utter all kinds of evil against you on my account, and he says, rejoice and be glad. And you go, that doesn't make any sense. I didn't think I signed up for that, rejoicing and being glad in the midst of terrible things. There's a mystery here. There's something going on. Such a great quote from Helmut Thielich, 19th century German pastor, theologian, uh, he encapsulates it very well when he says, what a ghastly prospect. I think I could not have said it better. It makes one ask, in all seriousness, how Jesus could ever have gained disciples with an appeal like that. You go, hey Jesus, maybe ratchet down the talk about all the horrible things and how in spite of that you got to be joyful and be glad and rejoice. Just, Jesus, you're trying to gather a crowd. Just lower the bar a little bit. A ghastly concept. He says, and then, does it not sound like sheer mockery for him to go on and say, in the face of the tortures of body and soul to which the disciples were actually exposed, rejoice and be glad. If that is not mockery, and surely it cannot be, then there must be some great mystery here which we do not see. There is a deep well for those who abide in Christ, those who are in relationship with God, there is a deep well of joy that we draw upon that is mysterious in nature in the way that people who are not followers of Jesus can look at the face of somebody rejoicing in persecution and go, why are they happy? There is a deep well that we get to pull from, deep joy in Christ. In the midst of being treated unfairly simply because you're associated with Christ your Lord, you're called to rejoice and be glad. Here's how I want to look at this so we can get to the mysterious nature of it. We can rejoice in the midst of it all. I want us to look at the guarantee of persecution. The guarantee of persecution. This is the content you came here for this morning, I know. The guarantee of persecution. Secondly, we'll look at the cause of persecution. And third, I want us to, to engage our posture in persecution. The guarantee, the cause, and then our posture in persecution. Now, like I said, last week, Brant took us through verse 10, which is really, really one of those things that I have the privilege of doing when I assign the preaching schedule. And I say, hey, this looks like a really tough week. I'm going to get Brant to come in and, and set the table for me. I'll take the second week. I didn't want to do two weeks in a row on this. But Brant came in, did a wonderful job. And when he talked about persecution, he, he talked about it. He said persecution, that, that this is talking about verse 10, 11, and 12, is what comes from aligning yourself with Jesus. And he said, living his righteousness, living it out in every area of your life. This is what ends up happening. Living out the righteousness of God in every area as he defines it in all of your life. That's the 
the source of the persecution that we're talking about. It's not persecution that comes, and I think this is very important, from being a belligerent, uh, mean-spirited, narrow-minded bigot of a person. Okay, that's not the persecution we're talking about. When you're a narrow-minded bigot, when you are a mean-spirited person, when you are belligerent about the way somebody else is living their life, and you take your giant study Bible and just want to whack them over the head with it, I know none of you would ever do this, but it's just, you might have friends. That's not persecution. You're just being treated in like kind. If people are mean to you, because of the way you handle your faith on a base level, because it's a bit belligerent, you don't get to run around and go, I'm being persecuted for my faith. That's not what this is saying. That's not what this is talking about. The people Jesus is talking about are being persecuted because of their commitment to obey the authority of Jesus in a winsome and gracious way in every area of their life. I think it's important to be reminded that Jesus includes this in this statement of the Beatitudes, these blessed statements that describe the disciples of Christ for all time. These are different characteristics of what a kingdom citizen will look like. And he includes on that list, one of the characteristics of a person is, and we saw it in verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted. He's saying it's a characteristic of following Jesus. Now, we're not supposed to seek that persecution, but Jesus wants us to know that it is inevitable. If we are committed to following him in a kingdom way, it is inevitable. It's not just for people over there who live in that country, under that governance, with that religious worldview. It's not for the person in front of you, who you're like, well, maybe they experience a bit of it. It's not for the person sitting behind you. Every single one of us, Jesus is saying, persecution is inevitable just allow that to sink in for a second all of us who earnestly desire to put christ first in every area of our lives will face opposition in one form or another sooner or later we can count on it doesn't mean we walk around trying to sniff it out everywhere looking for something persecuted kind of in that context to jump out from behind every bush that we see as we walk down the street like oh someone's going to persecute me today it probably is going to happen we don't live like that we're not victims in that way but we need to be aware that it is inevitability for every person who follows jesus that we will face opposition at some point in our lives paul the apostle who experienced much of it said the very same thing second timothy three twelve. indeed all who desire to live a godly life in christ jesus will be persecuted no mincing of words going to happen but is it not kind of god to prepare us for this as we look at scripture it's easier to deal with something if you know it's coming right it's when you're surprised by something you're unprepared for something that the situations turn very difficult but if there's a certain expectation that this is going to happen a certain guarantee that it's going to happen we can then prepare our hearts to deal with it when it comes So knowing that all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, knowing that ahead of time prepares us for any suffering that we're going to face as related to it. It helps us to rely on God's grace and the power of the Holy Spirit that we can persevere in spite of it. So for many of us, persecution will come as a surprise because we have not heard the guarantee that it's supposed to be attached to the way that we live our lives out faithfully before God and others. And so when it comes, we'll be wondering what happened. And and we'll have, I I would want to say, one of three responses. 
will either say, why God, why? How could you do this to me? Why would you allow it to happen? We could say, where have I screwed up and done something wrong? I must have sinned or something because I, I, my performance as a, as a follower of Jesus must not be good enough if somebody is coming against me. Or when it comes, we have the response to just flee the situation and do whatever we can to avoid that kind of suffering. Why God, why? What have I done wrong? How can I get out of this? So when religious people, and I, I mean that in the negative sense of being a religious type, When religious people suffer, they tend to either put God on trial or they think that their performance has not measured up. Religious people tend to think that God owes them a happy life and that's why they serve God. I do what you tell me to do and you make my life good and easy. That's not really what Christianity is about, but if you have a religious perspective of life and a religious posture in life, it can be the way that you default think. So when religious people suffer, they would either feel mad at God and say, I've been living right and this is what you give me. Or they feel like their performance has failed and they are mad at themselves and then they say, I must not have been living right. I must have missed something. Or it's the confluence of both of those ideas happening at once where you're mad at God and disappointed with yourself. If the circumstances of my life are not good and rosy and peachy right now, I must have done something wrong and God, how could you allow it to happen? Now, on the other hand, the irreligious person does absolutely everything to avoid suffering. The religious person sees no purpose in suffering in life, and the presence of suffering for the irreligious person renders life meaningless. So if we act irreligiously in light of the difficult suffering of persecution that we may endure, then we're going to be ill-prepared to actually handle it. We'll try to endure it in our own strength, and we'll do whatever we can to simply escape it, and that means we may actually compromise our witness to avoid persecution. I just want to get out of this. I'll say whatever I have to say to avoid suffering in this way. Now, that option is deadly to your soul. John Calvin said, they who wish to be exempt from persecutions must necessarily renounce Christ. different for people who walk with Jesus though. People who walk with Jesus are not in that negative religious category and they're not in the irreligious category. They're formed by the gospel. Followers of Jesus understand that the cross shows us that we have a God who has suffered. We serve a God who is intimately acquainted with suffering. We serve a God who was persecuted on our behalf, tried, condemned, and crucified in our place. We can't respond with the typical religiosity, and we can't respond in an irreligious manner. What we need to do is thread the needle with the impact of the truth of the gospel in our lives. Now, I owe this entire way of thinking to the discipleship of Tim Keller. The gospel, on one hand, takes away the surprise over our persecution and suffering. So we see that Jesus suffered persecution without complaint for us. We know that we deserve to be eternally lost. We know that we have sinned against him. Those of us who follow Jesus are well acquainted with the reality that we have not lived up to the righteous standard of God and that we need to repent of our sin and that in our repentance we come to him and he gives us new life. 
forgives us our sins and welcomes us into his family. We're well acquainted with that reality. We're acquainted with the God who is merciful, who will never give us what we deserve if we're in Christ. We're in Christ, therefore we don't get what we deserve. We get grace. We get the unmerited gift given to us of having an abiding relationship with him. What that does is it actually eliminates our accusation of God. We, we cannot put God on trial because he is good and he does good and all his ways are just. So it removes that first response of saying, why God, why? When we look upon the cross, the question of why God, why is removed. Jesus suffered in our place. On the other hand, because the suffering work of Jesus is so evident in scripture and because of the suffering work of jesus as it relates to our lives we know that god is also not punishing us for our sin whatever persecution we're enduring we recognize that god cannot receive two payments that christ has paid the price on our behalf so whatever suffering we're receiving whatever persecution we're enduring it's not vengeance from god because we've missed the mark If he is allowing this in our lives, it must be instruction for us or somehow it has to do with his greater purposes of revealing his glory to the world immediately around us. So we don't say as followers of Jesus, why God, why? And as followers of Jesus who've been renewed in the gospel, we don't say, I must not have measured up when things aren't going well. And that means that our suffering and our suffering of persecution cannot be meaningless. Tim Keller said, he suffered not that we might not suffer, but that in our sufferings we could become like him. So since both the religious and the irreligious ignore the cross, the the irreligious says the the cross has no meaning, suffering has no meaning, therefore suffering in my life has no meaning, I just need to escape suffering and try to live the good life. For the religious person who looks at it and says, why God, why, or I must not have measured up, all three of those responses are rendered mute and they're rendered void in light of the suffering of Christ on our behalf. It reveals to us that God is good, that we can't put him on trial, that Christ has atoned for our sin, therefore any difficulty in our lives is not a vindictive, vengeance sort of thing from God, but it's instructive in some way to help us to follow him, that we might reveal his glory in our lives. And then also we can't just try and escape it because Christ did not do that. So, because religious and irreligious can ignore the cross in those different ways, we will then, if we're in those camps, be confused and probably devastated by suffering in our lives. And the only way we can make sense then of suffering persecution in the name of Jesus, really the only way we can grab a hold of this and take it and rejoice and be glad in it is when we remember that we serve a Lord who suffered persecution and was crucified and who has promised us a great inheritance in the kingdom of heaven. Blessed, it says in verse 10, are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And you know one of the disciples who was at the feet of Jesus when he preached this Sermon on the Mount? His name is Peter. And in 1 Peter, it's a letter that talks much about the suffering of Christians. And my much smarter friend, Miriam Kovalishan, who's a New Testament scholar, she told me that she thinks 1 Peter is basically an unpacking of this beatitude. There's a connection here. Look at 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. 
he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, same language as our text, he did not revile in turn. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. This is how we come home. We come home by recognizing the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ and how it makes a way that our suffering is both meaningful and not vindictive acts of God. How suffering is not because he's not good and our suffering persecution is not because we have somehow screwed something up. It invokes meaning in the midst of our pain in every circumstance of life. So if we are Christians... If we are Christians, it is not if we suffer persecution, it's when. It's a guarantee. Again, look at verse 11. Blessed are you when others revile you, persecute you, utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. It's not if, it's when. We saw earlier in Paul. Where he says in 2 Timothy 3.12, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. Will be, not might be. So when you're reviled, when you're insulted and condemned or despised on his account, when you are persecuted, when you're wronged or you're victimized or you're oppressed on his account, when you are spoken against and you're slandered and you're reviled and you're hated and you're attacked on his account, when, not if. When this happens, Jesus says, you're blessed. Everybody said, that's fantastic. You're blessed. You're in right relationship with him. You can flourish in the midst of suffering persecution. Because your flourishing is not dictated by the way of the world around us. It's dictated by the way of Jesus who went to the cross. When, not if. So why? Why would you say this happens? Because, you're, because your life looks like Jesus in an increasing way. First Peter 2, we looked at this. For you've been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Something about the suffering of Christ. It's, he didn't suffer so that we wouldn't suffer, Keller said. He suffered so that we would have an example to grow more like him. And when your life grows more like Jesus, we're going to see this in a moment, in rejecting him, others will then reject you. The blessedness of your relationship with him cannot be crushed. It cannot be stolen. Your inheritance in him cannot be taken away from you. Look at verse 11 again. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Blessed are you. It's a, a plural you to the people who are there. You know, in, in all the first eight Beatitudes, Jesus uses these descriptors, and he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are uh, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, and it goes through the whole list. It describes these marks of people who are followers of Jesus, who have come into his kingdom, who are living and embodying that kingdom life. They're descriptors of what it looks like to be a disciple of Christ. But it's actually interesting, and this is why we'd say there's eight Beatitudes plus one further description of this this is different it doesn't say blessed are those who mourn it says blessed are you 
I think he moves to talking to a specific group of people here. It says, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain and he sat down and began to teach them. I think he's looking at different kinds of people who are in the crowd. And I just envision this. This is how I see the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus comes and he sits down in front of the crowd and he begins to teach them. And in the crowd, it's a diverse crowd of people. He's got the religious people. They are there to scrutinize his message. They're there to check on his theology. They're there to see if this Jesus of Nazareth, this rabbi who is growing a following, if he's actually orthodox, if he is on their team. The religious people are there to peer at him and gaze upon him and listen to his teaching to see if he fits with them. Then there's a group of people who are irreligious. They're not the people who normally turn up for the sermons that the popular rabbi of the day is going to be preaching. They're the irreligious people who do not normally show up to this kind of event. But here's the thing. They are so compelled by the compassion and the love and the authority of Jesus and how he is different than all the other religious teachers in the area. They're compelled by that. And they go, look, this isn't normally my scene. And some of you here this morning are probably not followers of Jesus. And you may be going like, look, this isn't normally my scene. But they're compelled by Jesus because he's different. His love, his mercy, his care for those who no one else cares for compelling to them and they say you know what i'm going to listen to what this guy has to say it's a diverse crowd of people you know what else i think though those who he has already called to follow him he says come and follow me he's got his disciples with him and they're probably up in the front and i think when he's looking out the distance he's blessed are you and blessed are you and blessed are you and blessed are you and he gives this whole sort of they're not generic but a generic list of marks of disciples of christ and then at the end of it he looks at them and he says blessed are you when you suffer persecution blessed are you when others revile you because of me blessed are you when people speak all manner of evil against you falsely on my account it's almost like he gets eyeball to eyeball with his disciples and i think that's the message for us as a church i think he's talking about you and you and you and you and he says not in general blessed are those who mourn blessed are those hunger and thirst for righteousness blessed are the merciful blessed are the peacemakers blessed are you when you're persecuted he brings it right down to a personal level with the people who already follow him there's something that he's getting at that's the guarantee of persecution for those who follow jesus that's the first point the second is the cause of persecution the cause where does this come from I've already alluded to it, but like I said, it's not because you're a belligerent, mean-spirited, narrow-minded bigot of a follower of Jesus. It's because you are winsomely and carefully and faithfully living out your life in every area in a Christ-centered manner, empowered by the Holy Spirit, and some people who reject him are going to reject you. The persecution of Christians comes from a variety of sources in a variety of situations around the world, but John Stott encapsulated it well when he said persecution is simply the clash between two irreconcilable value systems. Faithfulness to the way of Jesus, what it does is it creates friction in the hearts of those who are not submitting their lives to him. It's a clash of worldviews. And unfortunately, when there's dominant people in different power structures of the world who would not agree with the message of Jesus and they clash with your worldview, they're free to impose it upon you. You might experience that in thousand different ways and around the world people experience it in a thousand different ways could be the hard persecution that brant talked about last week where people are being imprisoned and beaten and being put to death because of their faithfulness to christ 
It could be the soft persecution that you suffer in your schools or your workplaces or in your families when you're told, shut up about that. When you're passed over for the promotion because they know that you think differently about things. When you're mocked because of your social views and your belief in an all-powerful God who created the world and everything in it. You know, there's a, a woman from Christ City, Kitsilano, who was telling the story to one of our pastors. Who said before this message that this was all coming up fresh in her life. Her boss walked into the break room where a number of the employees were sitting around. Her boss, person in authority in this, uh, in this environment, walked in. And said, I am so frustrated with these Christians. What is it wrong with them? Literally said, what's wrong with these Christians? And then went on a long rant about the ridiculousness of Christianity. And then said, are any of you Christians? Hi. This is not happening only far off places. It's not for people over there. It's for you. I know you experience this. Where does that come from? Where does the hostility come from? Jesus tells us in John chapter 15, verse 18, he says, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. Jesus says they don't know the Father. He also says it's a guarantee. But this is the why. Why people experience persecution is because of their fundamental connectivity and faithfulness to the God of the Bible. You have aligned yourself with Jesus, and where people reject him, they will reject you. Jesus tells his disciples they've rejected them. He says, they're going to reject you because you're not of the world. Because you live in line with the nature and character of God, you seek to live out his will as revealed in scripture, and you have your hope in the promised coming kingdom. Your lives are out of step with the way of the world. If you walk in the way of Jesus, your life will be out of step with the way of the world. And he says it's going to be difficult for you. Christian living is an indictment against a fallen world that is living in open rebellion against God. Rather than responding with repentance and faith to the God who they can evidently see, the world is inclined to instead respond with hostility. Let me explain what I mean. If you cherish sexual purity as revealed in Scripture, your life will be seen as an indictment to those who practice and promote sexual immorality. If you value life, beginning and end of life issues, and all of life in between. You will then convict those who promote abortion and euthanasia. If you are willing to speak truth in situations where the truth is not popular, you will be despised by those who are content to tell lies. If you walk in a manner of humility in your life, 
your life will will be taken as an attack against the evils of pride. If you live simply and joyfully, your life will then expose the folly of opulence and excess in our culture. If you're happy with very little, it's a challenge to those who are struggling to find happiness but who have everything. If you're not willing to cut corners at work, your integrity will be a threat to those who do. If you don't step on others to climb the corporate ladder because you treat them as human beings, not as obstacles in your way to success, you'll expose those who are willing to do anything to get ahead. If you're willing to submit to authority, what happens is is you highlight the rebellion of those who won't submit in any way. This isn't going to be on the screen, but in Romans chapter 1, in verses 19 to 21, Paul writes to the church in Rome, and he says, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Okay, I didn't say that. That's Paul. Don't be mad at me. Here's what he's saying. He's saying in the world... There is clearly in the order of creation the evidence that God is the creator and that the truth people have, though they might not know Christ, the truth they have, they suppress. That by nature, every single one of us, if you read Romans 1, are suppressors of the truth we have. And so he's saying that's going on in the world all around you. So when you live in light of the truth and the knowledge of the glory of God as evident in creation and revealed in Christ, those who are suppressing the truth that they have are going to respond to you in negative ways. I, have, I, I, don't, I can't communicate how many people, how many of you I've spoken to about your work environment and how your company sponsors the Pride Parade and while you can be as loving and generous to everybody who disagrees with you, that when you don't wear the pin or celebrate and participate in the parade, how you're socially ostracized in that environment. You, because of your faithfulness to God, can be winsome and gracious and loving with people who disagree with you, but you may not experience that reciprocated. There come things in this world where if you don't celebrate them, you will be pushed aside. People are not looking for your generous tolerance. They are looking for your wholehearted celebration of the ideologies that they hold to. And so you ask, why is there persecution in the world? Because we are aligned with Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith, the creator and sustainer of the cosmos. So, don't be surprised when the guarantee of persecution comes to your door. At this point, you might say, well, My faithfulness to Jesus may be an indictment to those who are willing to reject him. I understand that. But some of you might think, I'm not really experiencing this in my context. What does that say about me? Well, I stole this phrase from Fred Eaton at at Christ City Kids. He says that it might mean that you're living as an incognito Christian. 
know the incognito browser that you have where you click incognito and it doesn't track any of your history and no one ever gets to see your browser history? He's saying you might live as an incognito Christian. You've been so intimidated by the pressure of the culture, the pressure of your workplace, the pressure of your family, that what happens is, is your Christianity becomes totally privatized. And I would say there's many of us who may have been in that boat in different seasons. You might be there now where you are afraid to share the hope you have in Christ. And I would just say, you can be free to do it, but just know and be prepared that it might be difficult. Perhaps that doesn't describe you, though. Maybe you're, you're seeking to live a godly life in obedience to Christ. You're really clear about the fact that you're a follower of Jesus, and, and you're still not really experiencing that much opposition. I'd say two things. One, perhaps the gathering storm of persecution has not yet come to you. Just perhaps it just hasn't come. Maybe you do work with some really great people who are really uh, open to the diverse worldviews of the people that they work with. Maybe that's just that, and that's great. That's wonderful. Or maybe, or maybe, not only has it not come to you yet, maybe those people are actually being drawn to you because of the light of Christ in your life. See, not every person in our world who appears to not follow Jesus has out, outhanded, uh, has, has sort of just outwardly rejected him in every way. Before I was a follower of Christ, I had not rejected the claims of Christ. I never heard them. I certainly suppressed the truth that I had. There were things I did that I knew were wrong. I was like, ah, this seems wrong, but I'm going to do it anyways because I love it. That was me before I came to Christ. It wasn't that I rejected the message of the gospel. It wasn't that I rejected the goodness of God. It was that I'd never heard the gospel. Maybe you're working with people like that, and the way that you're living it out faithfully, and that you're rejoicing and being glad in the midst of difficult trials and circumstances in your life, maybe that's actually really attractive to people who are lost and broken and don't know the way home. Maybe God wants to use you to shine light in the darkness. Listen to Peter again. 1 Peter 3.13 says, Now to him who is there, oh, sorry, now who, now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you'll be blessed. Same language as our Beatitudes, right? Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make it offense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Same language as our Beatitudes. Just don't forget that apart from Christ, all of us are lost and broken and hopeless. That in Christ, we've come home. And we've been found. And we have hope. And our hope is not anchored in the successes of this life. And our hope is not anchored in having an easy, happy life. Our hope is anchored in something that transcends all of that. And it's the future promise that we need to draw into the present moment. Jesus said, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. So first, there's the guarantee of persecution. Secondly, there's the cause of why you're experiencing it. And third, our posture in the persecution. What's the posture we're supposed to take when this happens? Look at Matthew 5, 11, and 12 again. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Rejoice and be glad is the center of the mystery of how we live in the pain of suffering persecution. Rejoice and be glad. How is it that we can live that out? Rejoice and be glad. Look at verse 12. I want you to notice something because rejoice and be glad is how we're supposed to operate right now. It's the posture of our current situation and the future situations that we will be confronted with. 
Rejoice and be glad. For your future reward is great in heaven. For in the past, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Just track with this. In the past, you've got this entire Old Testament vision of the prophets being persecuted for their words of God being spoken to the people, calling people on their sin, speaking power to the nation. They're speaking truth to power in the nations. You've got guys like Jonah who go into the Assyrians and they preach, and they're persecuted in some ways for it. You've got all of the prophets, this whole history that we have. Then we've got the New Testament that unpacks all the followers of Jesus, most of whom met martyrs' deaths. Then we've got 2,000 years of Christian history where this has been going on for 2,000 years, and we have the current moment in history when more people are being killed for their faith than perhaps ever before. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. But your future reward in heaven cannot be taken from you. Your future reward in heaven, it's not like there's a place far off and it's called heaven and there's like a box sitting there that's your reward. Don't, don't think like that. Your reward in heaven is your relationship and your union with Christ. It is your relationship with God. And you take the fullness of that and the eternal kingdom you are promised and you grab a hold of that promise and you import it into the here and now moment where you can rejoice and be glad no matter what comes. That's how we live this out. That's the mystery of how Christians can smile while they're being burned on the stake. That's why people who are told, recant and renounce your faith in Christ and you will live, and they say, I can do nothing like that. I am thankful for the opportunity that God has put in front of me to be faithful to him to the end. I am thankful for the opportunity I have today in my workplace to say, while I appreciate and love you very much, I cannot participate in that. It goes against my convictions of what it means to be human. I think God has ordained for us a path to flourishing, and I don't think that path is this. So I can't participate with you. And I thank God for the opportunity it is right now to be ostracized by you. And I will rejoice and be glad in that. Because my future hope has been imported into my present moment, and I can live in light of what I'm guaranteed. It's what happens when you move out of the minutia of life, right? When you get zoomed right in on the minutia of life, this is what you do is you back out. You zoom out to that 35,000-foot view of the world that you see as you're flying in a plane and you look down on the world and you can see the whole picture. You're not caught up in the minutia of a weird relationship at work, but you zoom out and you say, you know what, I've been promised the kingdom of heaven and it can't be taken from me and I'll be faithful to the end and I'll rejoice and be glad in this moment because I have this perspective. I can endure all things in Christ. First Peter 4 says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. This is all about living faithfully that the glory of God might be revealed in our midst. And we are banking on the promise that we will rejoice and be glad now and when his glory is fully revealed. Would you stand with me as we respond today? Thanks for listening. For more information about Christ City Church in Vancouver, please visit ChristCityChurch.ca. We invite you to join us in praying that God's kingdom would come in Vancouver as it is in heaven.